Are y'all ready to start? Because it's 6.30. We're starting either way. Whether you're ready or not, we're doing the thing. So I'm asking a question that doesn't really matter. So, all right, let me pray for us, and then we are going to dive into our material for tonight. Father, we thank you for the, being able to gather and to be able to look at your word. God, I pray that as we look at um, you know, focusing in on two chapters of Exodus, um, but also seeing a much larger narrative unfolding, God, I pray that you would use your spirit to show us uh, accurately what is going on. Uh, we recognize that we need your Holy Spirit's um, aid in being able to rightly understand what it is that you have written for our instruction. And so we pray that that would happen tonight. And if you would, take a moment and pray for me and uh, pray that the things that I say would be accurate and that they would be beneficial and that it would be clear. If you would, just take a moment. Father, I thank you for the chance to be able to prepare and to be able to study, to get ready for teaching tonight. And Lord, I just ask that as we are working through this material, I pray that you would give me clarity of thought and of speech so that the things I say would be accurate and helpful. And God, we pray that it would be honoring to you and edifying for us. And we ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are going to be in Exodus tonight, so go ahead and turn to Exodus. We're really going to be hanging out in chapters 1 and 2, um, but really where we're going to end is at the end of Exodus 11. Um, so last week we talked about the structure of the Pentateuch, although we weren't in here. I filmed a video, and so that is on our YouTube page. You can go back and watch that, or you can listen to the audio online. Um, they've got all the slides and everything on there, so we should be good to go as far as like not missing anything. But... We basically two weeks ago finished up uh, looking at X, or excuse me, Genesis, and so we covered the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and then we covered the next 39 in one week. We're basically going to do the same thing tonight. We're going to cover basically 11 chapters of Exodus, and then we're going to look ahead next week to a much larger chunk. And so let me just recap where we were from last week. So like I said, we did. Uh, I covered the structure of the Pentateuch, and we talked about the orientation of the terms of how I will interchangeably use the terms for Pentateuch and Torah and how those are referring to the first five books of the Bible, the books of the law, the law of Moses, the books of Moses. There's multiple names, but they all mean the same thing, right? Um, and so we talked about how those terms are interchangeable and we talked about how there's one overarching story. And one of the things I said is that we should not atomize um, Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. A lot of times what we do is we look at individual stories and we see them disconnected from one another, but Moses wrote all five of those books in a very connected way. And the thread that I was really pulling on saying that this is what connects all of those first five books is the question, how will relationship be restored? All right, you can have that question asked from Genesis 2 and 3 when there is this goodness of creation and then sin enters the world. And then we have the question, well, hey, how is the relationship between humanity and God going to be restored? In Genesis chapter 4, when Cain and Abel um, have the first murder, the question becomes, how is the relationship to be restored there? And what I said, the answer is always, only, ever God's covenantal faithfulness. And that's the word that we talked about over the summer, chesed, is covenantal love, is never stopping, never giving up, always and forever, unbreakable love. That's the answer, which eventually leads us to naturally Jesus. And then one of the other things that I didn't make explicitly clear there, but I will hear, is that when we get to Exodus, we need to have 
all that information from Genesis, and we need to bring it to bear in Exodus. Make sense? We didn't just leave Genesis behind because we went to a new book. In fact, there's like a seamless transition between the two books, between Genesis and Exodus. You see that same transition happen between Exodus and Leviticus, and then to Numbers, and then to Deuteronomy, right? That's just how this works, right? So we need to assume everything we know from previous sections and bring it into what we're going to read tonight. Yeah? Cool? All right, so this is the plan for where we are heading Tonight, we are going to talk about now Israel is in Egypt, where we left off at the end of Genesis. Joseph was in Egypt. He was basically in charge. He's the number two guy in all of Egypt. And then we have Jacob and Israel, the rest of his family, 70 dudes start coming into Egypt. And that's where we ended. We're picking right up, right where that story uh, let off, right? And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about... Israel in Egypt. We're going to talk about them becoming slaves in Egypt. And then we're going to focus on Moses. And you're going to talk about his early life, his middle life, and then Aaron and him in Egypt. And that's really still his middle life portion. We'll talk about that. And then we're going to end on our final thoughts. If we have time, we're going to talk about the biblical view of slavery, right? Because this is an issue that we're going to deal with throughout the Pentateuch about these regulations about slavery. And then Paul and Peter both addressed slaves and slave owners in the New Testament. If we have time, we're going to try to address that as well. Yeah? Cool? All right. So let us talk about Israel in Egypt. All right. First thing we need to see, and this is the number one thing that if you get nothing else out of tonight, get this. God actually uses Egypt to preserve his people. What was happening in the land whenever Genesis uh, ended, or the last 15 chapters of Genesis? What was the thing that caused God's people to move from the land of Canaan to Egypt? What was happening? A famine, a huge famine, right? In fact, it was so bad that Joseph was the one who was planning and saying, hey, it's going to be not just a little bad for a couple of years, like it's going to last seven years. It's going to be devastating. And so, God actually orchestrates events so that his people, the people of Israel, Jacob, and all of his kids, about 70 of them, right? You can see that there in Exodus 1 verse 4, that there's about 70 people that show up, and God uses Egypt to be the place where his people are preserved. Okay, now hear me clearly when I say this. There's going to be all sorts of horrible things that happen in Egypt. Do not miss that God uses Egypt even in their horrible things. Does that make sense? Like God has a record of these miraculous reversals. He has a record of using things that we would think would not end in provision, and that's how he actually provides for his people. And we start seeing that pattern roll over and over again here, starting with Egypt. You tracking with that? All right, so not only that, we need to see that Exodus 1, 1 through 8 actually sets the context for everything else we're going to talk about. So I'm actually going to read all eight verses. That's kind of crazy. We're actually reading the Bible in here, which normally I'm just blowing by saying, read it for yourself. Here's what Exodus 1, 1 says. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. So if you're wondering how he's got 12 sons, but there's 70 people there, it's because it's their it's Jacob's sons and their kids, their whole family, right? And like I said, this is literally picking up where Genesis left off. These are the names of his sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, and all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, hint, hint, 
Go read the last 15 chapters. You'll see why of what was going on there in, in Genesis. But then, verse 6, Joseph died and all of his brothers and all the generation. So like... We are fast-forwarding what we find out is about 400 years into this uh, setting of Exodus. But the people of Israel were faithful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Great news. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph who? Why should I care about him? That's basically the thing. All right, I want somebody else who is not reading an English Standard Version. Somebody else read for me your translation of Exodus 1-7. Anybody else? Waxed exceeding mighty. Exceedingly mighty. All right, somebody else. Another translation. So the land was filled with them. Does any other language stand out to you that you should be hearing echoes of Exodus 1, 5, that you should be hearing that from something else we've read? So I see a couple of y'all nodding your head. Say it out loud for us. Genesis. What is the command to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. Not only that, I will actually tell you the word that gets used there for they were covering the face of the earth, that word is more literally swarming. That's the same word that Moses uses when he talks about in Genesis 1 and 2, or Genesis 1, when he talks about fish and animals, uh, uh, fish and birds in the sky and then animals on the ground that were swarming. That's the idea here. There are so many of these Israelites, these Hebrews that are running around. It's like, they're like all the creatures that God made back in Genesis 1. Come now. Like, you see, you see what's happening here, right? This is a partial fulfillment, which we'll see here in just a second. It's a partial fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Okay? We're going to talk about that in a second. So, it sets the context for us. Joseph was a revered leader in Egypt, but then there's this new Pharaoh, and he does not care. Joseph who? Right? Historically, we actually don't know who this pharaoh is. We don't know his name. That new king, the new pharaoh, that could be like just the next dude in a long line of successive pharaohs, or it could be like this is a brand new dynasty, and that's why he didn't know Joseph. Either way, we land at the same point. Verse 8, he doesn't care. Yeah? Tracking with that? So this guy shows up, he doesn't care, and what happens is God's people are beginning to multiply. That word, they are swarming on the earth, right? You can see that there, um, what we've already read, specifically in verse uh, 6 and 7, right? But this is a partial fulfillment of Genesis 12, 2 and 15, 5. So somebody over on this side, find Genesis 12, 2, read that for me. Somebody over here, go to Genesis 15, read verse 5 for me. So Genesis 12, 2, this is whenever God shows up to Abram and he tells him, hey, here's the promise I'm going to make to you. This is one of the things he promises Chapter 12, verse 2. Who's got it? Just read it out loud. Go ahead. I'm going to make you a great nation. Excellent. How many kids did Abram have? One. Right? One son that we really track, right? Okay, there's more to it than that, right? 15.5. What does uh, Genesis 15.5 say? Shall your offspring 
hey, Abram, I know you're kind of struggling with this whole making you a great nation. You're going to have all these kids because you only got one who's not actually here yet in chapter 15. Uh, step on outside your tent. Start counting the stars. When you give up and you realize you can't do it because there's so many, it's like, that's when you understand. That's how many kids I'm going to give you. What we see later on in Exodus is about 600,000 men walk out of Egypt. So when you start doing the math on the number of men plus what could be assumed of women and children, there's anywhere between a million and a half and two million people start walking out of here. We go from 70 to, let's just say for easy math, two million people. I don't know how else to explain that other than God is preserving his people and he's working towards this fulfillment of the promise of, I'm going to make Abram a father of many nations, right? I'm going to have a huge family for this guy. Tracking with that? All right. Any questions? All right. So we covered the first eight verses. What happens after that? Let's look at verse nine. And this is the new king speaking. And he, the king, said to the people, hey, man, behold, the people of Israel are too mighty and too many for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And so this is what's going on. Pharaoh is starting to fear an uprising from the Hebrews. Okay. By the way, remember, Hebrews, that's a term. Uh, the Ibrel is the word that Abram is an Ibrel. He is from the far side on the other side, meaning like the river, which is actually like east. He's from the east. These, these foreigners, they're growing so numerous in our homeland, we cannot allow that. They are too mighty for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, too late, and war breaks out, and they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Right? You, you see what's going on here. Is the Pharaoh is saying, this guy, Joseph who, doesn't matter. What I'm seeing is there's a problem of numbers here. Yeah? And so what he begins to do, he starts implementing these harsh crackdowns. Uh, let's look there in verse 11. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And then they end up building like these two whole cities. Well, it goes from them having uh, these harsh conditions laid upon them to where they still grow under these conditions. Keep reading. But the more they were oppressed, verse 12, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Dang it, that didn't work. So we can't just have like taskmasters over them. What we need is verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. So now we go from they're too numerous. We need to keep our eye on them. We need to deal shrewdly with them. We need to really put some, you know, some heavy handed dudes over them. And that ain't working either. We just got to make them straight up slaves. You see how that progression works? And this is where I say it's important for us to remember that even though that happens, this is God providing for his people and he is making sure that the promises of Abram are still going to be kept even under these conditions. Okay, So they go from these harsh crackdowns to eventually they are officially conscripted into slavery. And then it gets worse. Look with, it, with me there in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was Zephara and Pua. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, kill him. If he's a daughter, or if she's a daughter, let her live. And a little bit later, you can see there in verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you'll let every daughter live. And so, there's this culling of Hebrew children, specifically the boys. 
Pharaoh orders, hey, midwives, whenever y'all are ready to go deliver this baby, whenever you show up, you deliver the baby. And if it's a boy, toss him in the water. Kill him. And we see some shrewdness on the part of these, uh, these women. They start saying, ah, oh, Pharaoh, man, these Hebrew women, they're, they're crazy. They just like, they're so strong. They just give birth before they ever show up. And they tell Pharaoh that, and then they go tell the midwives, like, hey, or the mothers, like, hey, y'all need to, like, not call us till, like, the last minute. And what we see is that these Hebrew midwives are actually given families. You can see verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives because they feared the Lord. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Like, it doesn't work. Culling the Hebrew children doesn't work. And what actually happens is there's an ironic deliverance for Moses, right? Like, do you see the irony already starting to pile up here? What did Moses, or excuse me, what did Pharaoh say to the midwives? How are they supposed to kill these boys? Throw them in the river. Throw them out in the water. How does Moses get delivered? He gets thrown in the water, <laughs> right? A little more gently than that, you know, a little more to it. But he gets put in the water. So you see the irony here, right? And this is why I say we've got to read this pattern of Genesis where there are these reversals that are unexpected are now being brought to bear in this pattern yet again, even in Exodus. Yeah? Cool. Any questions about that? Yes, ma'am. Yep. Okay. So with the names, you're asking if there's a theme that's connected to the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent, which we are about to talk about here in a second. When you say the theme of the names, what do you mean specifically? By the way, what is the most powerful nation on earth at this point? Egypt. Who's the Pharaoh? What's his name? What about these two nameless midwives? We got their names forever. forever. Sephara and Pua, right? Again, there's irony. The guy who's the most powerful dude in the world can do whatever he likes, can't actually kill babies. He's that impotent. But these two midwives, and the word there for midwife also kind of connotates that maybe they're not actually able to have children themselves. But what are they doing? They're helping these women who can have children, and the people are multiplying because of it. And so, yeah, I'm absolutely right there with you. The fact that their names are recorded, but the Pharaoh's name isn't, is a thumb in the eye of that dude right there. And we'll talk more about Pharaoh here in a bit. Yeah, okay, so on a larger scale, the question there is, in the Old Testament, is there some kind of connection with people's names correlating to some reality here on earth? I think at times, yes, absolutely. I mean, like, even Moses' name means to be drawn out. Drawn out of what? He's drawn out of the water, right? Because he was supposed to die there, but, like, he's being drawn out, right? Um, even with um, Samuel, the Lord has heard, Right? Uh, Shema, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, right? Samuel is Shema El, the Lord hears, right? Saul, the first king of Israel, his name means we want, I want, I desire. What did Israel want? A king. 
And this is where when you want it bad, you get it bad. They got a king and he wasn't a good one, right? So I would say there are plenty of times where names are instructive for us. There are plenty of times, especially in the book of Judges, where, and even in Samuel, where physical um, descriptions of people are descriptions not just of their physical state, but they're actually indicators of their spiritual state. So yes, I think we should look out for those, but I don't think it's a rule that every time someone's mentioned that it's important. Yes, I absolutely would say this is one of those reversals. These midwives who are powerless are actually thwarting the most powerful man on earth. The seed of the woman is going to trample the head of the, the seed of the serpent, right? Does anyone know what, the, what Pharaoh's crown looked like? Do you know what he had on the front of his? He had a cobra hanging off the top of his head. Do you know how the prophets will describe Egypt later in the Old Testament? in serpentine language, that they are like a snake. Egypt is like a snake. So here you have in Genesis chapter three, you have the serpent deceiving a woman, right? Eve, which by the way, we've already talked about this. Eve was not the only one deceived. Like Adam was right there and did absolutely nothing. He's just as culpable, right? But you have in Genesis three that the woman is deceived by the serpent. Here you have women deceiving the serpent. Again, you see those reversals, right? This is why we need to see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all one story, right? Somebody just got a ticket. Cool? Yep. All right. Let's drive on. We're never going to get to the slave stuff, but hey, this is, this is good conversation here. All right, so let's talk about Moses' birth and his early life. So we have now finished Exodus chapter 1. Perfect. Now we're in Exodus chapter 2. Let's pick it up in Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she had saw that he was a fine child, that he, that's a problem, right? That he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made out of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, which is a lot of the same material that was used in... Um, in uh, Genesis 11, whenever they were making the Tower of Babel. This is like a waterproofing material. Why? Because she's about to throw that joker out in the water, right? <clears throat> and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds in the river bank. All right. Number one, this is a miraculous deliverance. Not just the fact that Moses' mom was able to give birth without Pharaoh coming and busting through the door and killing Moses, but she hides this kid for three months, right? And whenever she can no longer hide him, what does she do? She puts him into a, what's the word? You actually even know what that word really is? Ark. She puts Moses into a ark and puts him among the reeds. That's the same word that's gonna describe the Red Sea or the Reed Sea later. Come now, right? Come now. It, where you put someone dead. Yes? Yep. So the word there is related to, I don't know what the Coptic Egyptian word, I don't know what the word is, um, but it's related to the word for sarcophagus, which is where you put a dead dude. You put a mummy in there, right? And then that's where you transition from one life to the next. Come now, right? Come now. Like you see what's happening here. She puts him into an ark. And what happens? He's delivered. 
But we've got to read on to see that. Look at verse 4. Or actually, verse 3. Uh, she couldn't hold him any longer. She put him and placed him in among the reeds in the riverbank. In verse 4. And his sister stood at a distance among the reeds. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, to know what would have been done to him. And now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river. And while the young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. She drew it out. And so what did she do? She drew it out. What's this kid's name? Drew him out. Moses. And when she opened it, she saw a child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She knew immediately. Oh, this is a problem. This is a problem, and this is where we expect, hey, this is where these wicked Egyptians kill this kid, right? One of the Hebrew children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, apparently she's a servant there, shall I go and call a nurse from among the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, good idea, go do it. Go, and so the girl went and called who? Moses' mom. Come now, like this is miraculous, right? There's no way that this is not orchestrated by God. Are you tracking with me? So, this is a miraculous deliverance. And so, eventually, when Moses comes to age, he's actually aware that he's a Hebrew. How do I know that? Well, he has access to his mother and his sister from a very young age. And later on, we see from Acts chapter 7, which we're going to look at later, oddly enough, Acts chapter 7, we get information about how old Moses was whenever he went back to Egypt, how long he was out in Midian, all sorts of crazy stuff. But he was aware that he was a Hebrew because he knew his brothers were suffering. You see how crazy this is that he grew up in the house of Pharaoh, like literally the house of Pharaoh, and this is actually a means of preserving his life. Come now, right? Seeing the connections here? Let's drive on from there. So, eventually, Moses gets a little bit older. Let's pick it up in verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens. So he knew there was something off about how everything was working. He goes out in there and checks on them, and what happens? He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He knew. One of his people, um, or one of his brothers. And he looked this way and he looked that way and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. Now, this is kind of shady. Um, he kills this guy, right? He does. Now, the word that gets used for this Egyptian beating the Hebrew is it's like he's beating him to death. But the point that I want to make is that either way, Moses is rising to the defense of one of his brothers. Problem is, he kills the guy. He kills him and then he buries him in an empty grave and he just kind of throws some sand over him and hopes nobody sees, right? and then phew, takes off, okay? So it's kind of a gray area. Was he actually being righteous? Did he murder this dude? Like, what exactly happened? I don't really know about that, but I do know that there's a pattern, com pattern coming. Let's check it out. Look in verse 13. And he went out the next day. Behold, two Hebrews were struggling with each other. So the day before was an Egyptian and a Hebrew, and he put a stop to that. He sees these two guys fighting, and what's he going to do? He's going to put a stop to that too. Why do you strike your companion? And this guy answered, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Ugh. What are you going to do? You going to put me in the dirt too, next to that other guy? And then what eventually we see there in verse 15 is that when Pharaoh heard of this dude that Moses killed, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh. So eventually he confronts these two Hebrews and they actually say, man, who made you the king over us? Who made you prince? Who made you the leader? Yeah, you grew up in Pharaoh's house, but like, you're not one of us. You're not, you don't have the right to lead us. 
Does anybody see any irony in that statement? So eventually what happens is Moses has now got to flee. And so where he runs is to the desert of Midian. That's where we pick it up there in verse uh, 16. Moses is tired. He eventually crosses over. He's basically in the Sinai Peninsula. Think about that. He's out in the desert of Midian. And there's this guy named Jethro or Ruel. It's the same cat. She's got two different names. Um, Jethro is going to be his father-in-law because he sits down at a well. And this dude's seven daughters come rolling up. And then a bunch of jerks come up and start harassing these ladies. And you know what he does? He rises to their defense. Right? And he runs these other dudes off. And what happens as a result is that he gets to marry Zephariah, who's a priest's daughter. Remember, Moses is a Levite. He's already in a priestly order, right, because he's a Levite. We'll see that happening later on in the story. But what does he do? He marries into basically another priestly order. That's going to be important for us later on. But here, over and over again, we see Moses acting as a deliverer. Good, bad, or indifferent, what he did with the Egyptian. He was delivering this Hebrew dude who was about to die. He was trying to stop these two Hebrews from fighting. He sets the pattern all the way whenever he goes to Midian. He's there at the well, right? You seen how that works out? Moses is a deliverer. And then eventually at the very end of this chapter, this is when God hears Israel's groaning. You can look at that in verse 23 through uh, 24, 25. Yeah? Cool. So that's Moses' early life. And we find out later in Acts chapter 7, he's 40 years old when all this crazy stuff happens with the Egyptian cat that he buries in a shallow grave. Yeah? All right. I'm going to pause right there. Questions? Comments? All right. So let's look at Exodus chapter 3 now. Let me just pause right here. This isn't even on the screen. I have Moses' life broken up into three chunks. We find this from... Um, from Acts chapter 7. Moses lived in Pharaoh's house for about 40 years. He goes and kills this Egyptian dude and he's got to flee. He spends 40 years out there in the desert with Midian and or the desert of Midian with uh, Ruel and Jethro, right? Or Ruel slash Jethro and his wife. And then he hears God call to him in the burning bush. He goes back to Egypt and then eventually dies 40 years later. Okay, let me just do the basic math there. Moses... Let me ask you this. Did he accomplish all the things that God had for him in the first two-thirds of his life or in the last third? So for a lot of us, we like to think, man, I'm in my prime right now. I'm 35, I'm 22, whatever it is. But just keep in mind, like, God routinely uses people who are much later in their life. I'm looking at my senior adults right now, like, God ain't done, okay? He just didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm not saying that the first, yeah, I'm not saying the first 80 years don't matter. Yeah. No, 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 I'm not saying the first 80 years don't matter, but what I am saying is the last 40 years are what we really remember Moses for. So maybe the last third of your life is what you're really going to be remembered for. Praise God for that. Cool? All right, so that's why I have it divided up as his early life, his middle life. Here we go. So Moses is out there in this desert for 40 years. Go look in uh, Acts chapter 7. Um, this, is the, this is Stephen preaching, by the way. I've referenced it several times, but that's Stephen's sermon right before he gets killed, right? So uh, Acts 7, 23 through 30, you'll see that. And then eventually, God calls Moses from a burning bush, right? And this is the story that he's out on Mount Sinai, and there's like smoke coming up, and he's like, that's weird. Let me go check that out. And he gets there and it's a bush and it's on fire, but it's not like 
being consumed. Like, that's weird. And so he steps a little closer to investigate, and God speaks to him and says, hey, man, if you're going to get any closer, you need to take your shoes off. We got business to do. Yeah? So God calls Moses, and that's in Exodus chapter 3 in the first little bit. You can see that. And what he's told is, go to Pharaoh. You know the guy that was waiting for you to slip up so he could kill you because you killed one of his Egyptian servants. Go back to Pharaoh, and you're going to demand the release of Hebrew captives. That's what you're going to do. Walk straight up to him. Don't mess around with going through the bureaucracy. Go to him. Demand that he let his people go. And then all those dudes you get, we're going we're to get to work. We're going to form this nation. It's happening right now. Start working. Yeah? That's essentially what Moses is told there in Exodus 3. Really, in, uh, let's pick it up in verse 12 real quick. This is God speaking. He said, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You see what he's saying? Hey, when you get back on this side of of the sea, come back to this mountain. We've got other things to handle. And we start seeing the promise being projected into the land of Canaan, that they're going to be um, be formed into a nation with a land, right? Do you remember what one of the promises that Abram was given by God? I'm going to give you the land. And God tells Moses, hey, go back over to Egypt, and when you come back this way, come right back here. I'll give you the next step. Yeah? And so... Moses knows there's going to be a theological showdown. We'll talk about that here in just a second, between the showdown between God and the gods of Egypt. But he also knows there's going to be a theological showdown because what was his last experience messing around with some Hebrew dudes? He had to leave because they were about to rat on him, right? Who are you, guy? Who made you prince over us? Well, Exodus 3 says, eh, God did. And so he's like, (laughs) come on, God. Like, last time I was there, they were going to rat on me. Uh... What if they try it again? Who am I supposed to tell them sent me? God? And God's like, exactly. Yes. Let's pick it up there in verse 14 and 15. Uh, let's just pick it up 13. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to them, and they ask me, What is his name? What am I going to say to them? We've, all we've got is these stories from 400 years ago of our father Jacob and his 12 sons. And like, what am I going to bring to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, Yahweh, I am who I am. The I am is the one who is sending you. I am is sending you. And he said, so say to the people, I am has sent me to you. So God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, of whom? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remind them. No, 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 don't let them get off the hook. This is not something new. I'm just completing what I told Abram from the get-go. The first interaction I had with the guy back in Genesis 12, this is still active. Don't let them slip. I am that guy. I am that God. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so Moses knows there's going to be this theological showdown that he's going to have to provide proof, not only for the Egyptians, but also for the Hebrews, his own people. And this is when God says, this is my name, and don't forget it. Put some respect on it, and don't forget the name. Yeah? Other questions, comments that we have from Moses' middle life before we get into Aaron and him going to Egypt. All right. 
So let's look at Moses and Aaron in Egypt. So um, let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse uh, 21. Uh, this is after Moses has given these powerful signs. You can read chapter 4 in the first part. Let's pick it up in verse 21. This is after uh, Moses goes to Jethro, his father-in-law, Zephora's dad, uh, the priest of Midian of this area. Verse 21. Uh, let's pick it up in 19. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are what? Dead. Who was the one person seeking his life? That Pharaoh. What happened to him? He's dead. Go back. Now you can freely waltz right up to the new guy. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Just, just go right in. That's what you're going to do. All right? Go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And Moses took his wife and his sons and let them ride on a donkey. He went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you get back to Egypt, see to it that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles, all the signs that I have put in your power. But what is God going to do? I'm going to harden his heart. I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Hang on, guy. Like, was Moses not just told, go to Pharaoh, demand my people be released, and then when y'all are released, we're going to get in the land, we're going to be a nation. And then God's saying, oh yeah, he's not going to let y'all go. What? What? So what Moses has done... He's worked himself into a chute where he's like, well, God, I'm going to need you to do something for me. And God says, I'm going to give you all these signs and make sure you do every one of them in front of this guy. And the reason why that's important is because these plagues that we're going to see, they're going to start unfurling from chapter 6 all the way through basically chapter 11. Those plagues are signs that are given to demonstrate God's power over the Egyptians, right? Not only just like the Egyptian gods, but like the people themselves, and even the Hebrews, so that they would even recognize, no, 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 God is with this dude. I don't know what all's going on, but like, this is crazy. That's got to be the doing of God, yeah? And so the reason this is important is because Pharaoh, in his role as the leader of the nation of Egypt, his role was to hold everything in balance in Egypt, to placate certain gods, to appease and worship others, to make sure that the floods came when they were supposed to on the Nile, to make sure there was the right harvest, to make sure there wasn't this bad thing and balanced against this good thing. Are you tracking with that? And what does Moses come in there and do? He's looking at the scale and he's looking at Pharaoh and he's just putting his finger on it like, huh, you want to quit now? No? Okay. What about now? Nope. Okay. And he just keeps making it more and more unbalanced. And the one who is going to fall as a result of this is Pharaoh, because he is this representative of Egyptian gods. He is either a divine himself, or he's a represent, representative of those uh, deities in Egypt. And Moses is saying, no, you're not. You seen how the theological showdown is working? Incidentally, this happens all over the place in the, uh, in the Old Testament. Think about in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, um, Saul trots out the Ark of God in front of the Philistines. They actually whip the Israelites and they take the, uh, the Ark of God and they go put it in the house of Dagon, right? They put it in the house of Dagon and what do they find the next morning with the little idol of Dagon? Homeboy fell over. So they prop him back up. They come in there the next day, homeboy fell over. They prop him back up. On the third day, what happens to that little idol of Dagon? He has his head knocked off. And they're like, hey, y'all got to get rid of this thing. Like, so they put the ark on some donkeys and they just kind of slap him on the butt and get, get, right? Fast forward, the Philistines worship Dagon. 
Then there's this ruddy little dude named David, and he starts fighting the best representation of the Philistines, this cat named Goliath. And what does David do to that dude? How does he kill him? Hits him with a rock, but then what does he do? Cuts his head off. So you see how there is this theological showdown of what is happening in the spiritual realm is a reality of what's happening here and that God is going to have his rule and reign here through these people that he is saving. Yeah? Cool. All right. Let's drive on from there. We eventually get to, hey, there's all these plagues. It's going to get bad for you, Pharaoh. And he keeps putting his thumb on the scales and he's making it worse and worse for him. So you want to quit? No? Okay. Makes it worse. And eventually we get to the last one. Let's pick it up there. Uh, let's go to chapter seven real quick. Oh, this is where I want to mention this. Okay, so um, in chapter 7, we start seeing the first plague unfurl, and I want to hit on this idea of Pharaoh hardening his heart. Does anyone have a problem theologically with God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Has anyone ever wondered, like, how can God do that and then hold Pharaoh morally responsible for the things he did? Let me show you something. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 13 real quick. 7.13 says, Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And the way that's actually phrased is not that the Lord hardened his heart, it's that Pharaoh's heart was already hard. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. You notice God doesn't say, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. His heart's already hardened. Look with me in 7.22. 7.22 but the magicians of Egypt did by the same of their secret arts, and so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. Not God made his heart hard, it remained hardened. Look with me in chapter 8, verses 15 through 19. Uh, let's pick it up in 15. But, Pharaoh's, but when Pharaoh saw that the, there was a respite, he hardened his heart. You see the pattern I'm laying out? Look with me there in chapter 8, verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, implying that all the previous times was his doing as well. Look with me in chapter 9, verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. If we have any theological misgivings about, man, how did God like force this dude to like not even be capable of letting his people go because he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart? On at least four different occasions, Pharaoh's heart was already hardened by his own doing. Now, what you do get is starting in chapter 10, every time from here on out, God's the one who is like, yep, I've just pushed him right over the edge. If there was any debate of whether or not he was on the fence, I'm going to push him right off. He's absolutely hardened his heart. So here's my point. If we have any like theological problems with God's um, sovereignty, and this man's moral responsibility, recognize that he was the one that hardened his heart to begin with. Okay, that we, you've got to see that first. The order is he hardens his heart first, and just like Paul says in Romans 1, God gives him over to the lust of his flesh. And that's what you want, I keep telling you no, but okay, you can have it. And then God just lets him have what he wants, and it's hardening his heart, yeah? But eventually we get to the 10th plague. And this one is the one that actually touches Pharaoh's house, and his own son dies. And that's the thing that actually kicks everything off. You can look there in chapter 11. You can scan through um, in chapter 11 that there's this threat of this final plague. This is the, 
Um, the killing of the firstborn, when the angel of death comes through and is going to kill every firstborn, whether you're Egyptian or Hebrew, it doesn't matter unless you get the Passover, unless you get some blood. Come now, right? We're going to handle that next week. Cool? All right. Questions about this bit of Moses and Aaron in Egypt before I hit my final thoughts. All right, here's our final thoughts for this bit, and if we have enough time, then we'll talk about uh, slavery in the Bible. All right, number one, Exodus continues this theme of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. We've already talked about that, right? That the Pharaoh has a literal snake on his head, and that Egypt is described in serpentine language. And we've already seen this reversal of the woman being deceived by the serpent in Genesis 3, but here there's a reversal in Exodus 2 where the women are actually deceiving the serpent, right? That theme is going to happen over and over and over again, okay? Like, I just want to keep pointing it out because it is everywhere, okay? Here's the next thing you need to see. Moses' life actually mirrors what the coming experience of Israel is going to be, and it prepares us for that. Did anybody pick up on some things that seemed like really uncanny about the connections between Moses' experience and what we know will happen with Israel for the rest of the, the books? If you didn't, let me run through a couple for you. Moses, his life was threatened by Pharaoh, right? The calling of the, the Hebrew boys and what happened to the Egyptians, or excuse me, the Hebrews before Moses was born. They went from harsh treatment and these taskmasters to being oppressed, and then they were officially conscripted. Their lives were threatened, right? Moses is delivered through the waters of judgment, right? Those boys were supposed to be thrown into the water to die. But that's the very thing that God uses for Moses to be delivered through the reeds, through the Red Sea. Come now, right? How does Israel get out of Egypt? Through the Red Sea. What happens to those waters? They come crashing down in judgment on the Egyptians. I'm not making this up. Look at the third one. Moses' family is enriched by being in the house of Pharaoh, in the house of Egypt. God used Egypt to preserve his own people. Where did Moses grow up? In Pharaoh's house. And he had access to his mom and sister. Right? You see those connections? And this is where things flip from Moses' life is something that was mirroring what was presently going on to now Moses' life is going to foreshadow what's going to happen. Moses becomes a royal son by being in Pharaoh's house. And he was already a priest or will be with the Levites. But who does he, whose family does he marry into? A priest of Midian. What was it that happens at Mount Sinai? God says, hey, when you're on your way back through here, stop here. In Exodus chapter 19 and 20, you know what God says of Israel? You're all going to be a kingdom of priests. Moses is fleeing from Egypt under the threat of Pharaoh. That's an easy one. And Israel's going to do the exact same thing. Moses is going to meet with Jethro in the land of Midian. That's where he gets married. Right? Whenever you fast forward later into Exodus chapter 20 or so, that's whenever Moses is stopping back by Sinai, and who does he run into? Jethro. So the nation will encounter this guy again. Right? There's another one. Moses is there married in Midian. Like he has this covenant of marriage with Zephora, one of the priests, uh, daughters of the priest of Midian. Right? What happens when Israel shows up at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19? 
God gives them the law eventually, and they cut a covenant. Come now. Like you, are you seeing these connections? There's more. Moses is in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. He's out in Midian for 40 years. Sadly enough, he's going to be out in another wilderness for another 40 years, and that's basically the book of Numbers with the rest of Israel. Here's the last one. Moses is going to meet with God there at Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush, and in Exodus 19, that's whenever the covenant is made between God and Israel, and he's going to meet him again. Come now. Like, are you seeing how there is this literary masterpiece that is unfolding, and it's not just Exodus, it's built on Genesis, because this is in part a fulfillment of the promise made to Abram, right? And he just carries it all the way through. By the way, I'm not making those connections up. Like, I just rattled off like eight. Yeah? They are there. Go look for them yourself. Uh, here's the next thing. God's deliverance that he provides is absolutely unparalleled. Right? Who would have thought that the Nile would have been the thing that delivered Moses and that God was going to deliver Israel through, you know, walls of water killing an entire army? Like, you can't dream that up. Like, God's going to do some crazy things, and the way he delivers is unparalleled. And then here's my last thing. Exodus 1 and 2 is laced with irony. Let me ask you a question. What was Pharaoh's purpose in Exodus chapter 1 with the Hebrew babies, specifically the boys? What was his command? Kill them. How many people die in Exodus 1 and 2? Do you know how many? There are two. Do you know who those two are? Well, it's actually one, two, and three. We've got to get to chapter three for that. One is the cat that Moses kills. He's an Egyptian. You know who the other one is? Pharaoh. <laughs> Out of all of his effort, he's trying to kill all these baby boys, and not a single one in the narrative dies. The only two are Egyptians. You're right? Seeing that? Even Moses' name being drawn out, that's laced with irony because that's the place he's supposed to die. And that's actually where God's provision and deliverance comes from, right? And Moses eventually grows up to be this deliverer. The two Hebrews, like, man, who made you a king or a priest over us? Man, how dare you? Well, what we find out is literally a chapter later, God makes him the priest over them, the, the, or excuse me, the prince over them. Yeah? So there's all sorts of irony all over Exodus 1 and 2, all the way up to where we're going to leave off in chapter 11. Yeah? All right. Any questions at this point? Not a single question about the storyline of Exodus. Because here's my contention, just to remind us from last week. If we can draw a through line that connects all five of the first five books of the Bible which I think we clearly can, then maybe we can connect it a little bit further whenever we get to Joshua. And then maybe a little further into Judges. And then we can get into First and Second Samuel. Then we can get into the monarchy, right? Like, my contention is, yes, we can draw that line. And what I'm trying to show here is that this sets the stage. In fact, all, all the way up until Jeremiah, essentially, all of the prophets are going to look back at what God did in Egypt and say, this is how our God saves us. However crazy you thought that was, that's how he saves us. And eventually, the standard is no longer going to be Egypt. It's going to be, hey, he's going to rescue us, and he's going to send us back from exile when they come back from Babylon. 
And that's going to be the new standard. But that new standard of coming back from Babylon is going to be reflective of how God operated in Egypt. And he is miraculously delivering from them in a way that's unparalleled in any other way. You seeing that? All right, I want to make sure we get a chance for last questions. Or do y'all really want to get to the slavery bit? Is that what it is? No one's asking questions because you want to get to hear what I got to say about slavery? Chad, what you got? Yep. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, mm-hmm. you see the writer of Hebrews say, uh, you know, talking about all these uh, patriarchs and these of faith. And in verse 23, he starts with Moses, who was after he was born, was hidden by his parents, and pretty much verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's son. Yep. How do we, where does the writer of Hebrews get that? Yeah, yeah. Exodus chapter 2, all it says was Pharaoh's daughter. Um, she, she took Moses, she became her son, she went to Moses because she threw him out of the water. And the next thing is, years later, after he was grown up, he goes out and checks on this dude. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so the question is, whenever we see the author of Hebrews, and Hebrews 11 specifically in 23 and following, we see him give us some detail about Moses that, frankly, Moses doesn't give us about himself. I would also add to that, look at uh, Acts chapter 7. When Stephen is preaching, he gives us some details that aren't there in the narrative in Exodus as well. And so the question is, like, where'd you get that, guy? Where'd you get that? Well, I think the honest answer, and this is not a cop-out, is God revealed it. God revealed it to him. This is, there's more to it than that. In fact, if you start digging into the hall of faith there in Hebrews chapter 11, there's a whole lot of dudes that are on that list that whenever you look at them in their own context, it's problematic of like, that dude made it in? Like Samson? Or Gideon? The dude who says, don't make me king, just give me all this gold and let me just make a shirt that everybody can worship and don't call me king. And you know what he names his son? Son of the king. That's what his name means. Right? I mean, like, that dude makes it into the Hall of Faith. I would argue that God is providing more spiritual insight than we have access to, and that is the Holy Spirit inspiring Scripture in such a way that is sufficient and relevant for us. I can't go any further than that just because I don't know. I don't know of any um, Jewish literature that is in the Talmud or the Mishnah, which is like basically uh, Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, right? Um, So written by a bunch of rabbis at the turn of the millennia. Um, I don't know of any insight that they have that are from oral traditions of like, yeah, Moses wrote that, but what the oral tradition that we've received through our fathers is that Moses was actually out there for 40 years. And then the author of Hebrews later on would remember that, and then he would insert it into the book of Hebrews. I don't know of that connection, which leaves me with saying the only way he knows is that the Holy Spirit inspired him in such a way that he is given knowledge that he certainly would not have otherwise. Incidentally, that's not actually a problem because who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses, right? There's no way that he was there at the dawn of creation, right? He wasn't there prior to Exodus 2. So how did he get that information? Well, he had to have had it 
delivered to him supernaturally through the Holy Spirit, and that's what we call inspiration. That's the only way I know how to answer that. And I don't think that's a cop-out. I think that is wholly consistent with how we view Scripture as a whole. Other questions? Sue, so, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Eventually, you'll be able to unhear, or you will be unable to hear it at all. So the contention there from the study Bible notes is, no, God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart, at least not initially, but he absolutely made it certain that, like, hey, this is all you're going to have left because this is what you wanted. That's what I was alluding to in Romans 1. Later in Romans, I think it's 4, what Paul says is, don't presume on the loving kindness of God that his graciousness is meant to lead to repentance. I gave you time to respond in repentance. I kept giving you opportunities and you didn't do it. And eventually, Romans 1 says, God's going to say, fine. I told you not to get in the mud. Don't play in the mud. It's not good for you. This is not my plan for you. Don't do it. Okay, fine. You can have it. In many ways, this is actually the scary part of God's judgment in Scripture. And I know I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again here. One of the scary things about God's judgment is we like to think of it as like this really active thing, like the waters of the sea falling in on the Egyptians. Like, yeah, there's these really dramatic moments of where God judges something. But you know how more frequently it is in Scripture where God's judgment is talked about as He just lets them have what they want? And He lets natural consequences take their course? Like, God's judgment, I'm not saying God is passive and that, like He's inactive. No, no, He actively chooses to allow us to make these choices because I do believe we have this free will to um, exercise, even poorly, things that we think we would want to do. But there are consequences, choices and consequences, right? My dad always said, making choices is the easy part, living with them is the hard part, right? And I think that's what God's saying over and over. I am giving you warning after warning after warning. I gave you nine different plagues. You should have known. And there were times that, that Pharaoh seemed to like repent. In fact, that's actually the word that in Hebrew that gets used. But clearly it's not like a wholehearted repentance because immediately he goes back on his offer and says, no, y'all can't leave. Right? Well, that's a demonstration that Pharaoh was hardening his heart well before God actually got involved in that. Yeah? Other questions? And looky there, we don't have time for the slave conversation. I got about another minute or so if you got another question floating around. Yes, ma'am.
Yeah, he gave families to them. Yeah, that's what I was talking about. So in Exodus 1.21, it seems like that word for midwife might even be an indication that these women can't have children and that they are given families. That could mean that God opens up their womb, which we've seen God do that multiple times in in Genesis alone, we'll see it several times. Think of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 with Hannah and uh, Peninnah is the other wife who is fruitful and Elkanah who is the husband and Hannah has no children. God gives her a child, right? And so we see this reversal very well in verse 21. It very well may be that God gives them families that they can have children. But even if that's not what's going on, symbolically he's given them families by allowing them to have these Israelite women who can now have kids safely away from Pharaoh. Yeah? Yep, yeah. and I think that's another one of those reversals where it's miraculous. Yeah? If you want to know about what I think the Bible says about slavery, we can have that conversation at some other point. I'll try to work it in somewhere. Um, it's a much bigger conversation than 10 minutes would have allowed for, so we're probably going to need to skip that anyway. All right, so this is where we are heading next week. We have basically covered Genesis 1 all the way through Exodus 11. We're going to pick it up in Exodus 12, where the final plague and the Passover is observed. And we're going to go all the way from there to what eventually amounts to Exodus 19. <laughs> so we're going to cover eight chapters. And if you're sitting there looking like, man, we've got a whole lot of ground to cover when it comes to the kingdom and the split monarchy or the split divided kingdom and the unified monarchy. Like, yeah, we're going to get there, I promise you. But the reason why I want to slow down here is because I think it is that foundational for us to be able to see the question of how is God going to restore relationship? It's through his covenantal faithfulness only ever always. That's the only way this happens. Yeah. And so I really want to slow down for us to be able to look at it. Cool. Let me pray for us and then we will be done. Father, we thank you that we have recorded for us through our brother Moses and through your Holy Spirit interceding on his behalf and um, superintending this process of revealing supernaturally to him what was going on um, in his early life and things that he was clearly unaware of. God, we thank you for the way that you worked for him that you have worked on our behalf for having the word recorded for us, but ultimately we thank you for how you work in our hearts so that we might understand the beauties and the glories of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that as we think about how these stories lead to Christ being the ultimate fulfillment of your covenantal faithfulness, Lord, I pray that that would drive us to think more deeply about the Old Testament. I pray that that would cause us to think more deeply about your grace and your mercy. And God, I pray that that would be something that results in honor and worship for you and edification for us. Father, we thank you, we love you, and we confess that we need you. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. If you got questions, I'm up here.